That's who our God is. And he's been so loving, so gracious, that he has revealed himself in his word, the Bible, that he has told us everything that we need to know about life and about eternity in the pages of his scriptures. And we have freedom today in this time block to look further into his word together, not so that we become smarter, but so that we would become more like Jesus. And so turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, are the scope of our attention this morning. The sermon is titled, When Pleasure is a Problem. When Pleasure is a Problem. Many years ago now, two famous authors suggested two very opposite visions of the then-future 20th century. While the two visions were opposite, they were both equally chilling. George Orwell wrote the book 1984, in which he warned that culture would become overcome by external opponents. In another one of Orwell's books called The Animal Farm, he plainly identified that cultural external opposition to be communism. On the other hand, another author named Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World, suggested that the real danger that was coming was going to be pleasure-giving technologies. Pleasure-giving technologies. Orwell feared those who would ban books. Huxley feared that there would be no reason to ban books because no one would be reading them. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivialized culture, totally preoccupied with pleasures. In 1984, the book, Orwell saw future persons controlled by inflicted pain. In the Brave New World book, it saw the future of persons controlled by inflicted pleasures. Of course, Huxley was right. Orwell was wrong. Marxism has crumbled. But pleasure consumes. Today, the unpersecuted and comfortable church does not need to fear communism. Instead, she needs to fear pleasure-centered Christianity. What we need to fear, brothers and sisters, is pleasure-centered Christianity. James 4, verses 1 to 3, has a lot to say to us as believers who are prone to seek our pleasures. Follow along as I read James 4, verses 1 to 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot attain, obtain, excuse me, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Twice in these three verses, pleasures are referenced. Pleasures are referenced as problems. Pleasures in this passage are twice referenced as problems. Surprising, perhaps, that many troubles for us Christians are sourced in our chasing of pleasures. If you look again at verse 2, and let's do that, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When we chase pleasures, we can come to have some very serious problems. Verse 2 outlines what they are. If we chase pleasures in an ungodly way, in an imbalanced way, in an idolatrous way, we can have some very serious problems. See them there in verse 2? Fighting, quarreling, lusting, envying, killing, no praying, self-serving praying. Friends, at the time that the Lord Jesus' half-brother James wrote the verses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there were big troubles in the baby churches of Asia Minor. Fledging brand new churches that received this general epistle that was circulated in these baby churches, infant churches, were problems. And they had to do with the seeking of pleasure. And this general epistle was a grace of God to those baby churches that were in trouble. These new churches in many different localities were socioeconomically different from one another. And there was friction in these bodies. There was jealousy in these churches and there was pride. And put simply, brothers and sisters in Christ lined up against one another in these assemblies. And the battle lines were drawn largely according to being rich or being poor. And the rich and the poor both wanted prestige and power. And they wanted all to be teachers and not learners. And the result was bitter envy and selfish ambition that caused serious disorder in these baby churches and unruly behavior and ill will between truly saved individuals. Ugly. Some converts in these historic first century churches were from a zealot political background, and some of these brought their violent political activism into the churches. Do you think that might be happening in America in some churches this morning? You want to believe it. Can you imagine the mass of churches that were living like that? Fortunately, most of us here in the Bahamas can't imagine nightmare like that. But for some churches, they not only can imagine it, they are living it. 
Take the Episcopal Church in New York State some years ago. They fired their priest who insisted on reinstating the passing of the peace worship element. It's like our greeting time. The priest said, we ought to get back to greeting each other weekly in our worship service, the passing of the peace worship element. They were so mad at each other. They were so disrespectful of each other. They were so unresolved between their relationships with each other. They fired the priest before they were going to be made to shake hands with anybody at church. Instead of passing the peace, they chose to fire the priest. You see, church, grudges that are nursed along, coddled, rationalized. Nurses that are, grudges that are nursed, rather, they don't die easily. It takes the slaying hand of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God ministering the Word of God. In another church, their congregational business meeting was reduced to a physical brawl. The police had to be called in to break it up. In a third setting, a young father heard a loud commotion in his backyard it turned out that the daddy's young daughter and her playmates were in a heated, loud quarrel. And when he stepped in, his daughter yelled back, Dad, we're just playing church. Ouch. Today, the unpersecuted church, the comfortable church, doesn't need to fear communism, but we must fear pleasure-centered Christianity. Look again at verse 1, please. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now on Sundays... Praise the Lord, we come together, and most all of us come to church building with big smiles, and we dress up in in proper attire, and we put on some perfume, or we put on some cologne, and that's all good. But it's our unseen consuming drives for pleasure that can be the problem. It's our unheard consuming drives for pleasure that can be our problem. It's our undetected desires for pleasure that can be a huge problem. And the Greek word which is translated pleasures here is hedone. Hedone, from which we get our English word hedonism. And when we say that a certain person is a hedonist, we are saying that that person believes that pleasure is the chief good in life. The hedonist believes that pleasure is the chief good in life. And so the hedonist's motto is, if it feels good, do it. The hedonist says, hey, if you're going to get pleasure out of it, go ahead. Do it. Will you notice with me that verse 1 gives a two-part warning about chasing pleasure in that mentality. Verse 1 warns us, first, that the desire for pleasure can lead to quarrels. The second warning in verse 1 is the desire for pleasure can lead to quandaries. 
Desiring pleasure can lead to, on the one hand, to quarrels, on the other hand, to quandaries. Quarrels are interpersonal. I have a quarrel with you. You have a quarrel with me. That's an interpersonal issue. But similarly, desiring pleasures can also lead to an intrapersonal problem just within me. If I'm only about my pleasures, it can give a problem between you and me, but it also gives me a problem with me. Quarrels and quandaries. Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasure that wages war in your members? Which brings me to our first point in our text this morning, which is this. Chasing pleasures can cause problems between us and problems within us. Chasing pleasures can cause problems between us, but also problems within each of us. On we go to our second point. Our second point is this. God invented pleasure. He is not against all pleasure. He invented it. We wouldn't know the pleasure of nature if God hadn't made his creation so beautiful. We wouldn't know the pleasure of family if God hadn't designed husband, wife, commitment, and love. We wouldn't know the pleasure of art if God hadn't made us with the capacity to compose, to paint, to sculpt, to write. We wouldn't know the pleasure of dining if God hadn't given us appetites for food and creativity to cook it well. We wouldn't know the pleasure of marital intimacies if God hadn't given us both the passions and the parameters, both the passions and the parameters for these expressions of human love. You get the point? It's not that God is against all pleasure. Actually, God authors all healthy and wholesome pleasures. There's an interesting passage in C.S. Lewis's classic the screw tape letters. The senior devil is coaching the junior devil, whose name is Wormwood. Quote, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemies, that is God's, the enemy of Satan, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure, All the same, it is his invention, God's, not ours. He made the pleasures. All of our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which is the least natural, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. End of quote. So says the senior devil to the junior devil. And so far, needing to remember that God authors all healthy and wholesome pleasures, so far we previously in this message have seen, number one, chasing pleasures can cause problems between us and problems within us. Second point we've seen, God invented pleasures. He is not against them. Third point, God wants to sanctify and then to multiply our pleasures. 
God wants to sanctify and then to multiply our pleasures. You see, to see all pleasures as being sin is totally wrong. But because not all pleasure is sin, then we can sanctify the pleasures that are not sin. We can set them apart for God's possession and use. That's what it means to sanctify. God-given pleasures that are good, God-given pleasures that are wholesome, God-given pleasures that are holy should be by us sanctified. We should set them apart for God's possession and use in our lives. If you hold your place in James and go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy speaks of an end times lie that certain false teachers will try to perpetuate about pleasures. 1 Timothy 4, I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. This is God's prediction about what's going to happen in the end times by false teachers. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude. We need to understand when a pleasure is a gift from God, when it's good, when it's wholesome, when it's holy, when that is the case, we need to sanctify that pleasure in our lives. We need to set it apart from things that would sully and dirty it so that God can use it for good in our lives. Let me take the example of marriage. God invented marriage. It's the bedrock, the cornerstone of human civilization. It's a gift from God. The pleasures of marriage are a gift from God that we ought to sanctify, that we ought to set apart, that we ought to view as God views it, not how they view it at the water cooler at your business. One of the ways that you can properly sanctify marriage if you're married is to look on your ring finger of your left hand all the time. It's there to remind you that you're spoken for. It reminds everybody who sees you, you're spoken for, and it reminds you, hey, I'm spoken for. Sanctify marriage. Wedding rings. The false teachers that will come down the pipe in the last times, among other things, they're going to say, don't even get married. Don't enter into the pleasures that God has built into marriage. And don't eat food that you might like. Don't eat that food. You can't eat that food. God says, some pleasures are from him, and all pleasures from him are good and wholesome and holy, and so we're to sanctify those pleasures in our thinking so that he can multiply our pleasures that are sanctified as unto him. God wants us to sanctify 
and then he will multiply our pleasures. Guess what? When you have a wedding ring on the ring finger of your left hand, and it tells everybody who notices that you're spoken for, and it reminds you that you yourself are spoken for, that's to be sanctified in a marriage. But do you know what? God wants to multiply the pleasures of your marriage as you work for marital oneness. Remember I've taught you? Oneness is God's will for every marriage. Aloneness is Satan's will for every marriage. Anything that any married person decides that promotes aloneness with respect to their mate is of Satan. Because God's will for every marriage is oneness. And so when we sanctify marriage, this is God's deal. This is his invention. It's for my good. It's for my wife's good. It's for my children's good. It's for my grandchildren's good. It's for the Bahamas' good. It's for the church's good. We sanctify marriage, and then God multiplies the pleasures in a sanctified marriage. A woman who knows everything about me loves me anyway. Her name is Beth. We trust each other with everything. We have no secrets. It's a pleasure of marriage that God wants to grant as you sanctify marriage and set it apart from the world's view of it. And so, our third point again, God wants to sanctify and then to multiply our pleasures. Fourth point, we are to see and to honor God in our pleasures. We are to see and we are to honor God in our pleasures. And when we do both, when we see God in them and we honor God in them, then and only then we are satisfied in our pleasures. When we see God in a pleasure and we honor God in that pleasure, then we will be satisfied in that pleasure. Fail to see God, you won't be satisfied in the pleasure. Fail to honor God, you won't be satisfied in that pleasure. You want to be satisfied in your pleasures? See God in them. Honor God in them. There was a very interesting experiment. It involved a male butterfly and a female butterfly and a painted cardboard phony butterfly. The male butterfly ignored the living female butterfly if the painted cardboard fake butterfly was big. If the fake painted butterfly is bigger than the male and bigger than the real female butterfly, then the male butterfly always jumped toward the fake butterfly. The real butterfly was there moving her wings to get his attention in vain. All he could see was a painted, cardboard, fake, female butterfly. What's the point of that illustration? This. When our desires for pleasure blind us to seeing God, then we are chasing cardboard counterfeits of reality, which will always leave us empty. Materialism, idolatries of any kind, gossip, anything that takes us away from the regular reading and studying of his book blinds us to seeing God in whatever our pleasures are. And when we're blinded to seeing God in our pleasures, we're chasing cardboard butterflies and it will always leave us empty. 
But that's not all. The other point of this butterfly illustration is when our desires for pleasure dishonor Christ, when they dishonor Christ, then we are caught up and captured by cardboard fakes, which will always fail to satisfy us. When a desire for pleasure dishonors Jesus, it will catch you and keep you and capture you to take you to place of no satisfaction. Addictions to pornography, overeating, greed, laziness, gambling. All of these things, desires for pleasure that dishonor Jesus will catch us up into the trap of cardboard fakes, which will always fail to satisfy our hearts and our lives. And so, yes, to be satisfied in any pleasure, we must see God in it, and we must honor God in it. Let me come back to marriage. If you're going to be satisfied as a married person, first, you must see God in your marriage. What does that mean? You must see your marriage not as a contract, but a covenant that you have made with your mate before God, an unconditional covenant. See God in your marriage. See that it's about you both being having fidelity for each other, forsaking all others. You love him, wife. Forsaking all others. You love her, husband. Fidelity. God is the supreme and perfect one of fidelity, but he calls us who are married to have fidelity in our marriage vows. That's the seeing of God. Oh, and by the way, Author Gary Thomas has it right. God didn't give us marriage for our happiness. God gave us marriage for our holiness. God didn't give us marriage for our happiness. God gave us marriage for our holiness. Now, marriage, seeing God, covenant, fidelity, oneness. Honor God in marriage. God gives husbands one job. Agape, love your wife. Sacrificially give to meet your wife's needs without concern for the cost or the payback. That's the one job we have as husbands. Love our wives. Wives are given one job by the creator of marriage to submit to their husbands. We each have a job. We will honor God in the illustration of marriage to the degree that we as men love our wives. If I said to you, what's your wife, your wife's top three needs this morning? You better not look at me like, Deer in the headlights. You should know what your t- wife's top three needs are at any time. How can you sacrificially give to meet her needs if you don't have a clue what they are? If you don't know what your wife's top three needs are, and you're a married man, be- as you drive home before you get to the restaurant or your house, you turn to her and say, what are your top three needs? And ladies, don't look at him and say, well, that's a discounted question because the pastor made you ask it. Wives, if your husband asks you at any time what your needs are, don't think it's somehow a second, second best blessing. I say that I'm as dumb as I appear to be as a man. I am as dumb as I appear to be. So I have to ask my wife, what are your needs right now? And Beth tells me. So to honor God in this example of marriage, whether you're a husband, love your wife, or a wife, submit to your husband, then you'll know what God has intended, according to Ephesians 5, that 
The marriage relationship is the only miniature object lesson that God has chosen to leave on earth to tell the pagans how Jesus loves the church and how the church respects Jesus. Marriage is the only thing God's left on earth to teach the unredeemed how Jesus loves the church, gave sacrificially without concern for the cost or us paying him back, and how the church is to respond to Jesus with submission. Is that what your marriage is doing? Say, Pastor, you don't know who I'm married to. No, I don't care who you're married to. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't been doing it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, tomorrow is the day to start doing it right. You can start doing it tomorrow, right? In our pleasures, we must see God in them, and we must honor God in them. On to point number five. To see God and to honor God in our pleasures, we must marry prayer with our pleasures. We must marry prayer with our pleasures. If we're going to see God in our pleasures, if we're going to honor God in our pleasures, we have to marry prayer with our pleasures. Verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So watch this. Remember those troubled churches I told you about at the beginning of the message, the ones that were bickering and fighting over socioeconomic lines? Those fighting churches, those historic fighting churches, were not praying right. They were praying with selfish motives. They were praying with pleasure-driven motives. They were praying with wrong motives. That's what verse 3 says. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, on this matter of praying with right motives, you do realize, I hope, that when we close our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, it's not some formula. It's not to tell the person who's drowsing off that this thing's over now. Praying prayers in Jesus' name is to believe and to state theologically that we believe that what we just have prayed, Jesus would have prayed. To say in Jesus' name says that we believe that we have prayed in accordance, in alignment with the declared will of God as found in his word. If you don't think you've prayed that way, don't you dare close your prayer in Jesus' name. Well, these fighting churches in the first century had no business closing their prayers in Jesus' name. Because according to verse 3, you ask, they're prayed, and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. They were praying things of God that would please them. If that's not a problem enough, that they were praying with wrong motives, they also, if they weren't praying selfishly, apparently they weren't praying at all. If they weren't praying selfishly, apparently they weren't praying at all. Look at verse 2. 
You lust and do not have, and so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. They weren't praying. They either weren't praying, or when they were praying, they were doing it with selfish motives. I'll let Holy Spirit impress upon our hearts where we stand on those things. And so in this consideration of God's gift of pleasure, it winds up with a call to each of us to proper prayer. This consideration of how pleasure can be a problem but does not have to be a problem, this whole consideration of this sermon boils down to God calling you to proper prayer. What is that? Unselfish prayer. In Jesus' name prayer. Regular prayer. The marrying of prayer with your pleasures. This also, by inference, paints an ugly picture if we fail to pray at all. Verse 2 again, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. When a person knows that there are pleasures to be had, but that person doesn't pray and doesn't marry prayer to desired pleasures, then, according to this verse, there's lust, there's murder. You say, I've never murdered anybody. I'm glad. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22, if you call someone idiot, you've murdered them. You call them a jerk, you've murdered them. You call someone a fool, you've murdered them. And so when a person knows that there are pleasures to be had, but that person does not pray, does not marry prayer to the desired uh, pleasures, there's lust, there's murder, still verse 2, there's envy, there's fighting, and there's quarreling. And this, my friends, is precisely why we are called to marry unselfish prayer and in Jesus' name prayer and regular prayer to our pleasures. You know, like I do, that little children are so delightful. Little children are little video camcorders that God puts into families. They see everything in a home. They hear everything in a home, and they record it like a video camcorder records. And they tell you truth right between the eyes, don't they? And so on this topic of marrying prayer with our pleasures, I have an interesting challenge for you to take this week. You could ask your young kids. You could ask your young grandkids. You could ask your Awana clubbers if you don't have kids. You could ask your Sunday school class of kids this question. When do you think that I usually pray? From your observation, when do I most often pray? If they answer, when you're happy and blessed, then you're on to something good. Then you are actually marrying prayer to your pleasures. But if the kids say, well, only or mostly when you're unhappy and stressed, then it brings into question whether or not you're marrying prayer into your pleasures. Only or mostly praying when you're Unhappy or stressed may mean, doesn't have to mean, may mean that you are neither seeing God nor honoring God in your pleasures. So I challenge you, ask your kids, 
Ask your grandkids, ask your Awana kids, ask your Sunday school kids. When, when do I most often pray? Hopefully they see us praying when we're happy and when we're pleased, thanking God for the pleasures we're enjoying. James 4, 1 to 3, when pleasure can be a problem. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. We've seen five things together in these verses. Number one, chasing pleasures can cause problems between us and within us. Number two, God invented pleasure. He's not against it. Number three, God wants to sanctify and then to multiply our pleasures. Number four, we are to see and to honor God in our pleasures. And number five, we are to see God and honor God in our pleasures by marrying prayer to our pleasures. Please stand and pray with me. Father, you are so gracious to reveal yourself and your will to us in your word. We are grateful for this collection of verses that speak to our pleasures. We are grateful for the authoring of good and wholesome and holy pleasures in our lives. They are from you. And Father God, we thank you for taking pleasure yourself in providing us a grace salvation for a planet full of rebels. God, we would sanctify all of our pleasures, that we would see you in all of our pleasures, and that we would honor you in all of our pleasures. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and for Jesus' sake. And God's people said, amen.